1: part two chapter twenty four of after london this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by ruth golding after london or wild england by richard jeffreys part two wild england chapter twenty four fiery vapours felix tried to run but his feet would not rise from the ground his limbs were numb as in a nightmare He could not get there. His body would not obey his will. In reality he did move, but more slowly than when he walked. By degrees approaching the canoe his alarm subsided, for although it burned it was not injured. The canvas of the sail was not even scorched. When he got to it the flames had disappeared. Like jack-o'-the-lantern the phosphoric fire receded from him. With all his strength he strove to launch her, yet paused, for over the surface of the black water, now smooth and waveless, played immense curling flames, stretching out like endless serpents, weaving, winding, rolling over each other. Suddenly they contracted into a ball which shone with a steady light, and was as large as the full moon. The ball swept along, rose a little, and from it flew out long streamers, till it was unwound in fiery threads. But remembering that the flames had not even scorched the canvas, he pushed the canoe afloat, determined at any risk to leave this dreadful place. To his joy he felt a faint air rising. It cooled his forehead, but was not enough to fill the sail he paddled with all the strength he had left. The air seemed to come from exactly the opposite direction to what it had previously blown, some point of east, he supposed. Labour as hard as he would, the canoe moved slowly, being so heavy. It seemed as if the black water was thick and clung to her, retarding motion. Still he did move, and in time it seemed indeed a time. He left the island, which disappeared in the luminous vapours. Uncertain as to the direction, he got his compass, but it would not act. The needle had no life. It swung and came to rest, pointing any way as it chanced. It was demagnetized. Felix resolved to trust to the wind, which he was certain blew from the opposite quarter, and would therefore carry him out. The stars he could not see for the vapour, which formed a roof above him. The wind was rising, but in uncertain gusts. However, he hoisted the sail and floated slowly before it. Nothing but excitement could have kept him awake. Reclining in the canoe, he watched the serpent-like flames playing over the surface and forced himself by sheer power of will not to sleep. The two dark clouds which had accompanied him to the shore now faded away, and the cooling wind enabled him to bear up better against his parching thirst. His hope was to reach the clear and beautiful lake, his dread that in the uncertain light he might strike a concealed sandbank and become firmly fixed twice he passed islands distinguishable as masses of visible darkness while the twisted flames played up to the shore and the luminous vapour overhung the ground the island itself appeared as a black mass the wind became by degrees steadier and the canoe shot swiftly over the water his hopes rose he sat up and kept a keener look-out ahead All at once the canoe shook as if she had struck a rock. She vibrated from one end to the other, and stopped for a moment in her course. Felix sprang up, alarmed. At the same instant a bellowing noise reached him, succeeded by a frightful belching and roaring, as if a volcano had burst forth under the surface of the water. He looked back, but could see nothing. The canoe had not touched ground she sailed as rapidly as before. Again the shock, and again the hideous roaring, as if some force beneath the water were forcing itself up, vast bubbles rising and turning. Fortunately it was at a great distance. Hardly was it silent before it was reiterated for the third time. Next, Felix felt the canoe heave up, and he was aware that a large roller had passed under him. A second and a third followed. They were without crests, and were not raised by the wind. They obviously started from the scene of the disturbance. Soon afterwards the canoe moved quicker, and he detected a strong current setting in the direction he was sailing. The noise did not recur, nor did any more rollers pass under. Felix felt better and less dazed, but his weariness and sleepiness increased every moment. He fancied that the serpent flames were less brilliant and farther apart, and that the luminous vapour was thinner. How long he sat at the rudder he could not tell. He noticed that it seemed to grow darker, the serpent flames faded away, and the luminous vapour was succeeded by something like the natural gloom of night. At last he saw a star overhead, and hailed it with joy. He thought of Aurora. The next instant he fell back in the canoe, firm asleep. His arm, however, still retained the rudder-paddle in position, so that the canoe sped on with equal swiftness. She would have struck more than one of the sandbanks and islets had it not been for the strong current that was running. Instead of carrying her against the banks, this warded her off, for it drew her between the islands in the channels where it ran fastest, and the undertow, where it struck the shore, bore her back from the land. Driving before the wind, the canoe swept onward steadily to the west. In an hour, It had passed the line of the black water, and entered the sweet lake. Another hour, and all trace of the marshes had utterly disappeared. The last faint glow of the vapour had vanished. The dawn of the coming summer's day appeared, and the sky became a lovely azure. The canoe sailed on, but Felix remained immovable in slumber. Long since the strong current had ceased, it scarcely extended into the sweet waters, and the wind only impelled the canoe. As the sun rose, the breeze gradually fell away, and in an hour or so there was only a light air. The canoe had left most of the islets, and was approaching the open lake, when, as she passed almost the last, the yard caught the overhanging branch of a willow. The canoe swung round, and grounded gently under the shadow of the tree. For some time, the little wavelets beat against the side of the boat. Gradually they ceased, and the clear and beautiful water became still. Felix slept till nearly noon, when he awoke and sat up. At the sudden movement, a pike struck, and two moorhens scuttled out of the water into the grass on the shore. A thrush was singing sweetly, White-throats were busy in the bushes, and swallows swept by overhead. Felix drew a long, deep breath of intense relief. It was like awakening in paradise. He snatched up a cup, dipped and satisfied his craving thirst, then washed his hands over the side, and threw the water over his face. But when he came to stand up and move— he found that his limbs were almost powerless. Like a child, he tottered, his joints had no strength, his legs tingled as if they had been benumbed. He was so weak, he crawled on all fours along to the mast, furled the sail, kneeling, and dragged himself rather than stepped ashore with the painter. The instant he had fastened the rope to a branch, he threw himself at full length on the grass, and grasped a handful of it. Merely to touch the grass after such an experience was intense delight. The song of the thrush, the chatter of the white throats, the sight of a hedge sparrow gave him inexpressible pleasure. Lying on the sward he watched the curves traced by the swallows in the sky. From the sedges came the curious cry of the moorhen. A bright kingfisher went by. He rested as he had never rested before. His whole body, his whole being, was resigned to rest. It was fully two hours before he rose and crept on all fours into the canoe for food. There was only sufficient left for one meal, but that gave him no concern now he was out of the marshes. He could fish and use his crossbow. He now observed what had escaped him during the night. The canoe was black from end to end. Stem, stern, gunwale, thwart, outrigger, mast and sail were black. The stain did not come off on being touched. It seemed burnt in. As he leaned over the side to dip water and saw his reflection, he started. His face was black. His clothes were black his hair black. In his eagerness to drink the first time he had noticed nothing. His hands were less dark. Contact with the paddle and ropes had partly rubbed it off, he supposed. He washed, but the water did not materially diminish the discoloration. After eating he returned to the grass and rested again, and it was not till the sun was sinking that he felt any return of vigour. Still weak, but able now to walk, leaning on a stick, he began to make a camp for the coming night. But a few scraps, the remnant of his former meal, were left. On these he supped after a fashion, and long before the White owl began his rounds, Felix was fast asleep on his hunter's hide from the canoe. He found next morning that the island was small, only a few acres. It was well-wooded, dry, and sandy in places. He had little inclination or strength to resume his expedition. He erected a booth of branches, and resolved to stay a few days till his strength returned. By shooting wildfowl and fishing he fared very well, and soon recovered. In two days the discoloration of the skin had faded to an olive tint, which too grew fainter. The canoe lost its blackness, and became a rusty colour. By rubbing the coins he had carried away, he found they were gold. Part of the inscription remained, but he could not read it. The blue china tile was less injured than the metal. After washing it, it was bright. But the diamond pleased him most. It would be a splendid present for Aurora. Never had he seen anything like it in the palaces. He believed it was twice the size of the largest possessed by any king or prince. It was as big as his fingernail, and shone and gleamed in the sunlight, sparkling and reflecting the beams. Its value must be very great. But well he knew how dangerous it would be to exhibit it. On some pretext or other he would be thrown into prison, and the gem seized. It must be hidden with the greatest care— till he could produce it in Timer Castle, when the Baron would protect it. Felix regretted now that he had not searched further. Perhaps he might have found other treasures for Aurora. The next instant he repudiated his greed, and was only thankful that he had escaped with his life. He wondered and marvelled that he had done so, it was so well known that almost all who had ventured in had perished. Reflecting on the circumstances which had accompanied his entrance to the marshes, the migration of the birds seemed almost the most singular. They were evidently flying from some apprehended danger, and that most probably would be in the air. The gale at that time, however, was blowing in a direction which would appear to ensure safety to them, into and not out of the poisonous marshes did they then foresee that it would change did they expect it to veer like a cyclone and presently blow east with the same vigour as it then blew west that would carry the vapour from the inky waters out over the sweet lake and might even cause the foul water itself to temporarily encroach on the sweet the more he thought of it the more he felt convinced that this was the explanation And as a fact, the wind, after dropping, did arise again and blow from the east, though, as it happened, not with nearly the same strength. It fell, too, before long, fortunately for him. Clearly the birds had anticipated a cyclone, and that the wind, turning, would carry the gases out upon them to their destruction. They had therefore hurried away, and the fishes had done the same. The velocity of the gale which had carried him into the black waters had proved his safety by driving before it the thicker and most poisonous portion of the vapour, compressing it towards the east, so that he had entered the dreaded precincts under favourable conditions. When it dropped, while he was on the black island, he soon began to feel the effect of the gases rising imperceptibly from the soil and had he not had the good fortune to escape so soon, no doubt he would have fallen a victim. He could not congratulate himself sufficiently upon his good fortune. The other circumstances appeared to be due to the decay of the ancient city, to the decomposition of accumulated matter, to phosphorescence and gaseous exhalations. The black rocks that crumbled at a touch were doubtless the remains of ancient buildings saturated with the dark water and vapours. Inland, similar remains were white and resembled salt. But the great explosions which occurred as he was leaving, and which sent heavy rollers after him, were not easily understood, till he remembered that in Sylvester's Book of Natural Things... It was related that the ancient city had been undermined with vast conduits, sewers and tunnels, and that these communicated with the sea. It had been much disputed whether the sea did or did not still send its tides up to the site of the old quays. Felix now thought that the explosions were due to compressed air, or more probably to gases met with by the ascending tide. End of Part 2, Chapter 24 Part 2, Chapter 25 of After London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jeffreys. Part 2, Wild England, Chapter 25, The Shepherds. For four days Felix remained on the island, recovering his strength. By degrees, the memory of the scenes he had witnessed grew less vivid, and his nerves regained their tone. The fifth morning he sailed again, making due south with a gentle breeze from the west, which suited the canoe very well. He considered that he was now at the eastern extremity of the lake, and that by sailing south he should presently reach the place where the shore turned to the east again. The sharp prow of the canoe cut swiftly through the waves, a light spray flew occasionally in his face, and the wind blew pleasantly. In the cloudless sky, swallows and swifts were wheeling, and on the water half a dozen mallards moved aside to let him pass. About two hours after he started, he encountered a mist, which came softly over the surface of the water with the wind, and in an instant shut out all view. Even the sun was scarcely visible. It was very warm, and left no moisture. In five minutes he passed through, and emerged again in the bright sunlight. These dry, warm mists are frequently seen on the lake in summer, and are believed to portend a continuance of fine weather. Felix kept a good distance from the mainland, which was hilly and wooded, and with few islands. Presently he observed in the extreme distance on his right hand a line of mountainous hills, which he supposed to be the southern shore of the lake, and that he was sailing into a gulf or bay. He debated with himself whether he should alter his course and work across to the mountains, or to continue to trace the shore. Unless he did trace the shore, he could scarcely say that he had circumnavigated the lake, as he would leave this great bay unexplored. He continued, therefore, to sail directly south. The wind freshened towards noon, and the canoe flew at a great pace. Twice he passed through similar mists. There were now no islands at all, but a line of low chalk cliffs marked the shore. Considering that it must be deep and safe to do so, Felix bore in closer to look at the land. Woods ran along the hills right to the verge of the cliff, but he saw no signs of inhabitants, no smoke, boat or house. The sound of the surf beating on the beach was audible, though the waves were not large. High over the cliff he noted a kite soaring with forked tail at a great height, Immediately afterwards he ran into another mist or vapour, thicker, if anything, and which quite obscured his view. It seemed like a great cloud on the surface of the water, and broader than those he had previously entered. Suddenly the canoe stopped with a tremendous jerk, which pitched him forward on his knees. The mast cracked, and there was a noise of splitting wood. As soon as he could get up, Felix saw, to his bitter sorrow, that the canoe had split longitudinally. The water came up through the split, and the boat was held together only by the beams of the outrigger. He had run aground on a large, sharp flint embedded in a chalk floor, which had split the poplar wood of the canoe like an axe. The voyage was over, for the least strain would cause the canoe to part in two and if she were washed off the ground she would be waterlogged. In half a minute the mist passed, leaving him in the bright day, shipwrecked. Felix now saw that the waters were white with suspended chalk, and, sounding with the paddle, found that the depth was but a few inches. He had driven at full speed on a reef. There was no danger for the distance to the shore was hardly two hundred yards, and judging by the appearance of the water it was shallow all the way. But his canoe, the product of so much labour, and in which he had voyaged so far, his canoe was destroyed. He could not repair her. He doubted whether it could have been done successfully, even at home, with Oliver to help him. He could sail no farther. "'There was nothing for it but to get ashore and travel on foot. "'If the wind rose higher, the waves would soon break clean over her, and she would go to pieces. "'With a heavy heart Felix took his paddle and stepped overboard. "'Feeling with the paddle he plumbed the depth in front of him, "'and, as he expected, walked all the way to the shore no deeper than his knees.' this was fortunate, as it enabled him to convey his things to land without loss. He wrapped up the tools and manuscripts in one of his hunter's hides. When the whole cargo was landed, he sat down sorrowfully at the foot of the cliff, and looked out at the broken mast and sail, still flapping uselessly in the breeze. It was a long time before he recovered himself, and set to work mechanically to bury the crossbow, hunter's hides, tools, and manuscripts under a heap of pebbles. As the cliff, though low, was perpendicular, he could not scale it, else he would have preferred to conceal them in the woods above. To pile pebbles over them was the best he could do for the present. He intended to return for them when he discovered a path up the cliff. He then started, taking only his bow and arrows. But no such path was to be found. He walked on and on till weary, and still the cliff ran like a wall on his left hand. After an hour's rest he started again, and as the sun was declining, came suddenly to a gap in the cliff, where a grassy sward came down to the shore. It was now too late, and he was too weary, to think of returning for his things that evening he made a scanty meal and endeavoured to rest but the excitement of losing the canoe the long march since the lack of good food all tended to render him restless weary he could not rest nor move farther the time passed slowly the sun sank the wind ceased after an interminable time the stars appeared and still he could not sleep. He had chosen a spot under an oak on the green slope. The night was warm and even sultry, so that he did not miss his covering, but there was no rest in him. Towards the dawn, which comes very early at that season, he at last slept with his back to the tree. He awoke with a start in broad daylight to see a man standing in front of him, Armed with a long spear. Felix sprang to his feet, instinctively feeling for his hunting knife, but he saw in an instant that no injury was meant, for the man was leaning on the shaft of his weapon, and of course could, if so he had wished, have run him through while sleeping. They looked at each other for a moment. The stranger was clad in a tunic and wore a hat of plaited straw. He was very tall and strongly built his single weapon, a spear of twice his own length. His beard came down on his chest. He spoke to Felix in a dialect the latter did not understand. Felix held out his hand as a token of amity, which the other took. He spoke again. Felix, on his part, tried to explain his shipwreck, when a word the stranger uttered, recalled to Felix's memory, the peculiar dialect used by the shepherd-race on the hills in the neighbourhood of his home. He spoke in this dialect, which the stranger in part at least understood, and the sound of which at once rendered him more friendly. By degrees they comprehended each other's meaning the easier, as the shepherd had come the same way, and had seen the wreck of the canoe. Felix learned that the shepherd was a scout— "'sent on ahead, to see that the road was clear of enemies. "'His tribe were on the march with their flocks, "'and to avoid the steep woods and hills which there blocked their course, "'they had followed the level and open beach at the foot of the cliff, "'aware, of course, of the gap which Felix had found. "'While they were talking, Felix saw the cloud of dust raised by the sheep "'as the flocks wound round a jutting buttress of cliff.' His friend explained that they marched in the night and early morning to avoid the heat of the day. Their proposed halting-place was close at hand. He must go on and see that all was clear. Felix accompanied him, and found within the wood at the summit a grassy coombe where a spring rose. The shepherd threw down his spear, and began to dam up the channel of the spring with stones, flints, and sods of earth, in order to form a pool at which the sheep might drink. Felix assisted him, and the water speedily began to rise. The flocks were not allowed to rush tumultuously to the water. They came in about fifty at a time, each division with its shepherds and their dogs, so that confusion was avoided, and all had their share. There were about twenty of these divisions, besides eighty cows and a few goats they had no horses, their baggage came on the backs of asses. After the whole of the flocks and herds had been watered, several fires were lit by the women, who in stature and hardihood scarcely differed from the men. Not till this work was over did the others gather about Felix to hear his story. Finding that he was hungry, they ran to the baggage for food, and pressed on him a little dark bread, plentiful cheese and butter, dried tongue, and horns of mead. He could not devour a fiftieth part of what these hospitable people brought him. Having nothing else to give them, he took from his pocket one of the gold coins he had brought from the site of the ancient city, and offered it. They laughed, and made him understand that it was of no value to them. But they passed it from hand to hand and he noticed that they began to look at him curiously. From its blackened appearance they conjectured whence he had obtained it. One, too, pointed to his shoes, which were still blackened, and appeared to have been scorched. The whole camp now pressed on him, their wonder and interest rising to a great height. With some trouble Felix described his journey over the site of the ancient city interrupted with constant exclamations, questions, and excited conversation. He told them everything, except about the diamond. Their manner towards him perceptibly altered. From the first they had been hospitable. They now became respectful and even reverent. The elders and their chief, not to be distinguished by dress or ornament from the rest, Treated him with ceremony and marked deference, the children were brought to see and even to touch him, so great was their amazement that any one should have escaped from these pestilential vapours that they attributed it to divine interposition and looked upon him with some of the awe of superstition. He was asked to stay with them altogether and to take command of the tribe. The latter Felix declined to stay with them for a while at least, he was, of course, willing enough. He mentioned his hidden possessions, and got up to return for them, but they would not permit him. Two men started at once. He gave them the bearings of the spot, and they had not the least doubt but that they should find it, especially as, the wind being still, the canoe would not yet have broken up, and would guide them. The tribe remained in the green coombe the whole day resting from their long journey. They wearied Felix with questions. Still, he answered them as copiously as he could. He felt too grateful for their kindness not to satisfy them. His bow was handled, his arrows carried about, so that the quiver for the time was empty, and the arrows scattered in twenty hands. He astonished them by exhibiting his skill with the weapon, "'striking a tree with an arrow at nearly three hundred yards. "'Though familiar, of course, with the bow, "'they had never seen shooting like that, "'nor indeed any archery except at short quarters. "'They had no other arms themselves but spears and knives. "'Seeing one of the women cutting the boughs from a fallen tree, "'dead and dry, and therefore preferable for fuel, "'Felix naturally went to help her.' and taking the axe soon made a bundle which he carried for her it was his duty as a noble to see that no woman not a slave laboured he had been bred in that idea and would have felt disgraced had he permitted it the women looked on with astonishment for in these rude tribes the labour of the women was considered valuable and appraised like that of a horse without any conscious design Felix thus in one day conciliated and won the regard of the two most powerful parties in the camp, the chief and the women. By his refusing the command, the chief was flattered, and his possible hostility prevented. The act of cutting the wood and carrying the bundle gave him the hearts of the women. They did not indeed think their labour in any degree oppressive. Still, To be relieved of it was pleasing. The two men who had gone for Felix's buried treasure did not return till breakfast next morning. They stepped into the camp, each with his spear reddened and dripping with fresh blood. Felix no sooner saw the blood than he fainted. He quickly recovered, but he could not endure the sight of the spears, which were removed and hidden from his view. He had seen blood enough spilt at the siege of Iwis, but this came upon him in all its horror, unrelieved by the excitement of war. The two shepherds had been dogged by gypsies, and had been obliged to make a round to escape. They took their revenge by climbing into trees, and as their pursuers passed under, thrust them through with their long spears. The shepherds, like all their related tribes, had been at feud with the gypsies for many generations. The gypsies followed them to and from their pastures, cut off stragglers, destroyed or stole their sheep and cattle, and now and then overwhelmed a whole tribe. Of late the contest had become more sanguinary and almost ceaseless. Mounted on swift, though small, horses, the gypsies had the advantage of the shepherds. On the other hand, the shepherds, being men of great stature and strength, could not be carried away by a rush if they had time to form a circle, as was their custom of battle. They lost many men by the javelins thrown by the gypsies, who rode up to the edge of the circle, cast their darts, and retreated. If the shepherds left their circle, they were easily ridden over, while they maintained formation they lost individuals but saved the mass. Battles were of rare occurrence. The gypsies watched for opportunities and executed raids, the shepherds retaliated, and thus the endless war continued. The shepherds invariably posted sentinels, and sent forward scouts to ascertain if the way were clear. Accustomed to the horrid scenes of war from childhood, they could not understand Felix's sensitiveness. They laughed, and then petted him like a spoilt child. This galled him exceedingly. He felt humiliated and eager to reassert his manhood. He was willing to stay with them there for a while. Nothing would have induced him to leave them now, till he had vindicated himself in their sight. The incident happened soon after sunrise, Which is very early at the end of June. The camp had only waited for the return of these men, and on their appearance began to move. The march that morning was not a long one, as the sky was clear, and the heat soon wearied the flocks. Felix accompanied the scout in advance, armed with his bow, eager to encounter the gipsies. End of part two, chapter twenty five. part 2 chapter 26 of after london this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by ruth golding after london or wild england by richard jeffreys part 2 wild england chapter 26 bow and arrow three mornings the shepherds marched in the same manner when they came in view of a range of hills so high that to Felix they appeared mountains. The home of the tribe was in these hills, and once there they were comparatively safe from attack. In early spring, when the herbage on the downs was scarce, the flocks moved to the meadow-like lands far in the valleys. In summer they returned to the hills. In autumn they went to the vales again soon after noon on the third day the scouts reported that a large body of gypsies were moving in a direction which would cut off their course to the hills on the morrow the chief held a council and it was determined that a forced march should be made at once by another route more to the left and it was thought that in this way they might reach the base of the slopes by evening the distance was not great and could easily have been traversed by the men The flocks and herds, however, could not be hurried much. A messenger was dispatched to the hills for assistance, and the march began. It was a tedious movement. Felix was wearied, and walked in a drowsy state. Towards six o'clock, as he guessed, the trees began to thin, and the column reached the first slopes of the hills. Here about thirty shepherds joined them, a contingent from the nearest camp. It was considered that the danger was now past, and that the gypsies would not attack them on the hill, but it was a mistake. A large body almost immediately appeared, coming along the slope on the right, not less than two hundred, and from their open movements and numbers it was evident that they intended battle. The flocks and herds were driven hastily into a coombe or narrow valley, and there left to their fate. All the armed men formed in a circle, the women occupied the centre. Felix took his stand outside the circle by a gnarled and decayed oak. There was, just there, a slight rise in the ground, which he knew would give him some advantage in discharging his arrows, and would also allow him a clear view. His friends earnestly entreated him to enter the circle, and even sought to bring him within it by force, till he explained to them—' That he could not shoot if so surrounded, and promised if the gipsies charged to rush inside. Felix unslung his quiver and placed it on the ground before him. A second quiver he put beside it. Four or five arrows he stuck upright in the sward so that he could catch hold of them quickly. Two arrows he held in his left hand, another he fitted to the string. Thus prepared, He watched the gipsies advance. They came, walking their short wiry horses, to within half a mile, when they began to trot down the slope. They could not surround the shepherds because of the steep-sided coombe and some brushwood, and could advance only on two fronts. Felix rapidly became so excited that his sight was affected and his head whirled. His heart beat with such speed that his breath seemed going his limbs tottered, and he dreaded lest he should faint. His intensely nervous organisation, strung up to its highest pitch, shook him in its grasp, and his will was powerless to control it. He felt that he should disgrace himself once more before these rugged but brave shepherds, who betrayed not the slightest symptom of agitation. For one hour of Oliver's calm courage and utter absence of nervousness, he would have given years of his life. His friends in the circle observed his agitation, and renewed their entreaties to him to come inside it. This only was needed to complete his discomfiture. He lost his head altogether. He saw nothing but a confused mass of yellow and red rushing towards him. For each of the gypsies wore a yellow or red scarf, some about the body, some over the shoulder, others round the head. They were now within three hundred yards. A murmur from the shepherd spearman. Felix had discharged an arrow. It stuck in the ground about twenty paces from him. He shot again. It flew wild and quivering, and dropped harmlessly. Another murmur. They expressed to each other their contempt for the bow. This immediately restored Felix. He forgot the enemy as an enemy. He forgot himself. He thought only of his skill as an archer, now in question. Pride upheld him. The third arrow he fitted properly to the string. He planted his left foot slightly in advance. "'and looked steadfastly at the horseman before he drew his bow. "'At a distance of one hundred and fifty yards they had paused, "'and were widening out so as to advance in loose open rank "'and allow each man to throw his javelin. "'They shouted. "'The spearmen in the circle replied and levelled their spears. "'Felix fixed his eye on one of the gypsies "'who was ordering and marshalling the rest, a chief.' He drew the arrow, swiftly but quietly, the string hummed, the pliant yew obeyed, and the long arrow shot forward in a steady, swift flight, like a line of gossamer drawn through the air. It missed the chief, but pierced the horse he rode just in front of the rider's thigh. The maddened horse reared and fell backwards on his rider. The spearman shouted. Before the sound could leave their lips, another arrow had sped. A gipsy threw up his arms with a shriek. The arrow had gone through his body. A third, a fourth, a fifth, six gipsies rolled on the sward. Shout upon shout rent the air from the spearmen. Utterly unused to this mode of fighting, the gipsies fell back. Still the fatal arrows pursued them, and ere they were out of range, three others fell now the rage of battle burned in felix his eyes gleamed his lips were open his nostrils wide like a horse running a race he shouted to the spearmen to follow him and snatching up his quiver ran forward gathered together in a group the gypsy band consulted felix ran at full speed swift of foot he left the heavy spearmen behind Alone he approached the horsemen. All the Aquila courage was up within him. He kept the higher ground as he ran, and stopped suddenly on a little knoll or tumulus. His arrow flew, a gypsy fell. Again, and a third. Their anger gave them fresh courage, to be repulsed by one only. Twenty of them started to charge and run him down. The keen arrows flew faster than their horses' feet. Now the horse and now the man met those sharp points. Six fell. The rest returned. The shepherds came running. Felix ordered them to charge the gypsies. His success gave him authority. They obeyed, and as they charged, he shot nine more arrows, nine more deadly wounds. Suddenly the gypsy band turned and fled into the brushwood on the lower slopes. Breathless, Felix sat down on the knoll, and the spearmen swarmed around him. Hardly had they begun to speak to him, than there was a shout, and they saw a body of shepherds descending the hill. There were three hundred of them. Warned by the messenger, the whole country had risen to repel the gypsies. Too late to join in the fight, they had seen the last of it. They examined the field. There were ten dead and six wounded who were taken prisoners. The rest escaped, though hurt. In many cases the arrow had gone clean through the body. Then, for the first time, they understood the immense power of the yew-bow in strong and skilful hands. Felix was overwhelmed. They almost crushed him with their attentions. The women fell at his feet and kissed them. But the archer could scarcely reply. His intense, nervous excitement had left him weak and almost faint. His one idea was to rest. As he walked back to the camp, between the chiefs of the shepherd spearmen, his eyes closed, his limbs tottered, and they had to support him. At the camp he threw himself on the sward under the gnarled oak and was instantly fast asleep. Immediately the camp was stilled, not to disturb him. His adventures in the marshes of the buried city, his canoe, his archery, were talked of the live-long night. Next morning the camp set out for their home in the mountains, and he was escorted by nearly four hundred spearmen. They had saved for him the ornaments of the gypsies who had fallen golden earrings and nose-rings. He gave them to the women, except one, a finger-ring set with turquoise, and evidently of ancient make, which he kept for Aurora. Two marches brought them to the home of the tribe, where the rest of the spearmen left them. The place was called Wolfstead. Felix saw at once how easily this spot might be fortified there was a deep and narrow valley like a groove or green trench opening to the south at the upper end of the valley rose a hill not very high but steep narrow at the ridge and steep again on the other side over it was a broad wooded and beautiful vale beyond that again the higher mountains towards the foot of the narrow ridge here there was a succession of chalk cliffs so that to climb up on that side in the face of opposition would be extremely difficult. In the gorge of the enclosed narrow valley a spring rose. The shepherds had formed eight pools, one after the other, water being of great importance to them, and farther down, where the valley opened, there were forty or fifty acres of irrigated meadow. The spring then ran into a considerable brook, across which was the forest. Felix's idea was to run a palisade along the margin of the brook, and up both sides of the valley to the ridge. There he would build a fort. The edges of the chalk cliffs he would connect with a palisade or a wall, and so form a complete enclosure. He mentioned his scheme to the shepherds. They did not greatly care for it, as they had always been secure without it, the rugged nature of the country not permitting horsemen to penetrate. But they were so completely under his influence that to please him they set about the work. He had to show them how to make a palisade. They had never seen one. And he made the first part of it himself. At building a wall with loose stones without mortar, the shepherds were skilful. The wall along the verge of the cliffs was soon up. And so was the fort on the top of the ridge. The fort consisted merely of a circular wall rest high with embrasures or crenellations when this was finished felix had a sense of mastership for in this fort he felt as if he could rule the whole country from day to day shepherds came from the more distant parts to see the famous archer and to admire the enclosure though the idea of it had never occurred to them now they saw it they fully understood its advantages And two other chiefs began to erect similar forts and palisades. End of part two, chapter twenty six, part two, chapter twenty seven of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jeffreys. Part Two Wild England Chapter Twenty Seven Surprised Felix was now anxious to continue his journey, yet he did not like to leave the shepherds, with whom his life was so pleasant. As usual, when deliberating, he wandered about the hills, and then into the forest. The shepherds at first insisted on at least two of their number accompanying him. They were fearful lest the gypsies should seize him, or a bushman assassinate him. This company was irksome to Felix. In time he convinced them that he was a much better hunter than any of the tribe, and they permitted him to roam alone. During one of these excursions into the forest he discovered a beautiful lake. He looked down on the water from the summit of one of the green mountains. It was, he thought, half a mile across, and the opposite shore was open woodland, grassy and meadow-like, and dotted with fine old oaks. By degrees these closed together, and the forest succeeded. Beyond it again, at a distance of two miles, were green hills. A little clearing only was wanted to make the place fit for a castle and enclosure, Through the grassland opposite he traced the course of a large brook down to the lake. Another entered it on the right, and the lake gradually narrowed to a river on his left. Could he erect a tower there and bring Aurora to it? How happy he would be! A more beautiful spot he had never seen, nor one more suited for every purpose in life. He followed the course of the stream which left the lake, Every now and then disturbing wild goats from the cliffs, and twice he saw deer under the oaks across it. On rounding a spur of down, he saw that the river debouched into a much wider lake, which he conjectured must be the Sweet Waters. He went on till he reached the mouth of the river, and had then no doubt that he was standing once more on the shore of the Sweet Water Sea. On this, the southern side, the banks were low, on the other a steep chalky cliff almost overhung the river and jutted out into the lake, curving somewhat towards him. A fort on that cliff would command the entrance to the river. The cliff was a natural breakwater, so that there was a haven at its base. The river appeared broad and deep enough for navigation so that vessels could pass from the Great Lake to the inland water, about six or seven miles, he supposed. Felix was much taken with this spot. The beauty of the inland lake, the evident richness of the soil, the river communicating with the Great Lake, the cliff commanding its entrance. Never in all his wanderings had he seen a district so well suited for a settlement, and the founding of a city. If he had but a thousand men, how soon would he bring Aurora there, and build a tower, and erect a palisade? So occupied was he with the thought, that he returned the whole distance to the spot where he had made the discovery. There he remained a long time, designing it all in his mind. The tower he would build yonder, three-quarters of a mile, perhaps a mile, inland from the opposite shore, on a green knoll at the base of which the brook flowed. It would be even more pleasant there than on the shore of the lake. The forest he would clear back a little, and put up a stout palisade, enclosing at least three miles of grassy land. By the shore of the lake he would build his town, so that his vessels might be able to go forth into the great sweet water sea so strongly did imagination hold him that he did not observe how near it was to sunset nor did he remark the threatening aspect of the sky thunder awoke him from his dream he looked and saw a storm rapidly coming from the northeast he descended the hill and sheltered himself as well as possible among some thick fir-trees. After the lightning, the rain poured so heavily that it penetrated the branches, and he unstrung his bow and placed the string in his pocket, that it might not become wet. Instantly there was a whoop on either side, and two gypsies darted from the undergrowth towards him. While the terrible bow was bent, they had followed him, tracking his footsteps. The moment he unstrung the bow they rushed out. Felix crushed through between the firs by main force getting through, but only opening a passage for them to follow. They could easily have thrust their darts through him, but their object was to take him alive, and gratify the revenge of the tribes with torture. Felix doubled from the firs and made towards the far-distant camp, but he was faced by three more gypsies. He turned again, and made for the steep hill he had descended. With all his strength, he raced up it. His lightness of foot carried him in advance, and he reached the summit a hundred yards ahead. But he knew he must be overtaken presently, unless he could hit upon some stratagem. In the instant that he paused to breathe on the summit, a thought struck him. Like the wind he raced along the ridge, making for the great sweet water the same path he had followed in the morning. Once on the ridge the five pursuers shouted. They knew they should have him now there were no more hills to breast. It was not so easy as they imagined. Felix was in splendid training. He kept his lead, and even drew a little on them. Still he knew in time he must succumb, just as the stag, though swifter of foot, ultimately succumbs to the hounds. They would track him till they had him. If only he could gain enough to have time to string and bend his bow. But with all his efforts he could not get away more than the hundred yards, and that was not far enough. It could be traversed in ten seconds. They would have him before he could string it and fit an arrow. If only he had been fresh as in the morning. But he had had a long walk during the day, and not much food. He knew that his burst of speed must soon slacken, but he had a stratagem yet. Keeping along the ridge till he reached the place where the lake narrowed to the river, suddenly he rushed down the hill towards the water. The edge was encumbered with brushwood and fallen trees. He scrambled over and through anyhow. He tore a path through the bushes and plunged in. But his jacket caught in a branch. He had his knife out and cut off the shred of cloth. Then, with the bow and knife in one hand, he struck out for the opposite shore. His hope was that the gypsies, being horsemen, and passing all their lives on their horses, might not know how to swim. His conjecture was right. They stopped on the brink, and yelled their loudest. When he had passed the middle of the slow stream, their rage rose to a shriek, startling a heron far down the water. Felix reached the opposite shore in safety, but the bowstring was now wet and useless. He struck off at once straight across the grasslands, past the oaks he had admired, past the green knoll where in imagination he had built his castle and brought Aurora, through the brook, which he found was larger than it appeared at a distance, and required two or three strokes to cross. A few more paces, and the forest sheltered him under the trees he rested, and considered what course to pursue. The gypsies would expect him to endeavour to regain his friends, and would watch to cut off his return. Felix determined to make, instead, for another camp farther east, and to get even there by a detour. Bitterly he reproached himself for his folly in leaving the camp, knowing that gypsies were about with no other weapon than the bow. The knife at his belt was practically no weapon at all, useful only in the last extremity. Had he a short-sword or javelin, he would have faced the two gypsies who first sprang towards him. Worse than this was the folly of wandering without the least precaution into a territory at that time full of gypsies, who had every reason to desire his capture. If he had used the ordinary precautions of woodcraft, he would have noticed their traces, and he would not have exposed himself in full view on the ridges of the hills, where a man was visible for miles. If he perished through his carelessness, how bitter it would be! To lose Aurora by the merest folly would indeed be humiliating. He braced himself to the journey before him, and set off at a good swinging hunter's pace as it is called that is a pace rather more than a walk and less than a run with the limbs somewhat bent and long springy steps the forest was in the worst possible condition for movement the rain had damped the fern and undergrowth and every branch showered raindrops upon him it was now past sunset and the dusk was increasing this he welcomed as hiding him. He travelled on till nearly dawn, and then, turning to the right, swept round and regained the line of the mountainous hills after sunrise. There he rested and reached a camp about nine in the morning, having walked altogether since the preceding morning fully fifty miles. This camp was about fifteen miles distant from that of his friends. The shepherds knew him and one of them started with the news of his safety. In the afternoon, ten of his friends came over to see him, and to reproach him. His weariness was so great that for three days he scarcely moved from the hut, during which time the weather was wet and stormy, as is often the case in summer after a thunderstorm. On the fourth morning it was fine, and Felix, Now quite restored to his usual strength, went out with the shepherds. He found some of them engaged in throwing up a heap of stones, flint and chalk lumps near an oak tree in a plain at the foot of the hill. They told him that during the thunderstorm two cows and ten sheep had been killed there by lightning, which had scarcely injured the oak. It was their custom to pile up a heap of stones wherever such an event occurred, to warn others from staying themselves, or allowing their sheep or cattle to stay near the spot in thunder, as it was observed that where lightning struck once, it was sure to strike again, sooner or later. Then, said Felix, you may be sure there is water there. He knew, from his study of the knowledge of the ancients, that lightning frequently leapt from trees or buildings to concealed water. But he had no intention of indicating water in that particular spot. He meant the remark in a general sense. But the shepherds, ever desirous of water, and looking on Felix as a being of a different order to themselves, took his casual observation in its literal sense. They brought their tools and dug, and, as it chanced, found a copious spring. The water gushed forth and formed a streamlet. Upon this the whole tribe gathered, and they saluted Felix as one almost divine. It was in vain that he endeavoured to repel this homage, and to explain the reason of his remark, and that it was only in a general way that he intended it. Facts were too strong for him, they had heard his words which they considered an inspiration, and there was the water. It was no use. There was the spring, the very thing they most wanted. Perforce Felix was invested with attributes beyond nature. The report spread. His own old friends came in a crowd to see the new spring, others journeyed from afar. In a week, Felix having meanwhile returned to Wolfstead his fame had for the second time spread all over the district some came a hundred miles to see him nothing he could say was listened to these simple straightforward people understood nothing but facts and the defeat of the gipsies and the discovery of the spring seemed to them little less than supernatural besides which in innumerable little ways Felix's superior knowledge had told upon them. His very manners spoke of high training. His persuasive voice won them. His constructive skill and power of planning, as shown in the palisades and enclosure, showed a grasp of circumstances new to them. This was a man such as they had never before seen. They began to bring him disputes to settle he shrank from this position of judge but it was useless to struggle they would wait as long as he liked but his decision they would have and no other next came the sick begging to be cured here felix was firm he would not attempt to be a physician and they went away but unfortunately it happened that he let out his knowledge of plants and back they came. Felix did not know what course to pursue. If by chance he did anyone good, crowds would beset him. If injury resulted, perhaps he would be assassinated. This fear was quite unfounded. He really had not the smallest idea of how high he stood in their estimation. After much consideration— Felix hit upon a method which would save him from many inconveniences. He announced his intention of forming a herb garden, in which to grow the best kind of herbs, and at the same time said he would not administer any medicine himself, but would tell their own native physicians and nurses all he knew, so that they could use his knowledge. The herb garden was at once begun in the valley. It could not contain much till next year, and meantime, if any diseased persons came, Felix saw them, expressed his opinion to the old shepherd who was the doctor of the tribe, and the latter carried out his instructions. Felix did succeed in relieving some small ailments and thereby added to his reputation. End of part two chapter twenty seven Part two Chapter twenty eight of After London This Librivox recording is in the public domain Recording by Ruth Golding After London or Wild England by Richard Jeffreys Part two Wild England Chapter twenty eight for Aurora Felix now began to find out for himself the ancient truth that difficulties always confront man. Success only changes them and increases their number. Difficulties faced him in every direction. At home it had seemed impossible for him to do anything. Now that success seemed to smile on him, and he had become a power, instead of everything being smooth and easy, new difficulties sprang up for solution at every point. He wished to continue his journey, but he feared that he would not be permitted to depart. He would have to start away in the night, in which case he could hardly return to them again, and yet he wished to return to these, the first friends he had had, and amongst whom he hoped to found a city. Another week slipped away, and Felix was meditating his escape, when one afternoon a deputation of ten spearmen arrived from a distant tribe, who had nominated him their king, and sent their principal men to convey the intelligence. Fame is always greatest at a distance, and this tribe in the mountains of the east had actually chosen him as king, and declared that they would obey him whether he took up his residence with them or not. Felix was naturally greatly pleased how delighted aurora would be but he was in perplexity what to do for he could not tell whether the wolfstead people would be favourably inclined or would resent his selection he had not long to consider there was an assembly of the tribe and they too chose him by common consent as their king secretly they were annoyed that another tribe had been more forward than themselves and were anxious that Felix should not leave them. Felix declined the honour. In spite of his refusal, he was treated as if he were the most despotic monarch. Four days afterwards, two other tribes joined the movement, and sent their acceptance of him as their monarch. Others followed, and so quickly now that a day never passed without another tribe sending a deputation. Felix thought deeply on the matter. He was, of course, flattered, and ready to accept the dignity, but he was alive to considerations of policy. He resolved that he would not use the title, nor exercise the functions of a king, as usually understood. He explained his plan to the chiefs. It was that he should be called simply leader, the leader of the war that he should only assume royal authority in time of war, that the present chiefs should retain their authority and each govern as before, in accordance with ancient custom. He proposed to be king only during wartime. He would, if they liked, write out their laws for them in a book, and so give their customs cohesion and shape. To this plan the tribes readily agreed, It retained all the former customs, it left the chiefs their simple patriarchal authority, and it gave all of them the advantage of combination in war. As the leader, Felix was henceforth known. In the course of a fortnight, upwards of six thousand men had joined the Confederacy, and Felix wrote down the names of twenty tribes on a sheet of parchment which he took from his chest. A hut had long since been built for him, but he received all the deputations, and held the assemblies which were necessary, in the circular fort. He was so pressed to visit the tribes, that he could not refuse to go to the nearest, and thus his journey was again postponed. During this progress from tribal camp to tribal camp, Felix gained the adhesion of twelve more making a total of thirty-two names of camps, representing about eight thousand spearmen. With pride, Felix reflected that he commanded a far larger army than the Prince of Ponzi. But he was not happy. Months had now elapsed since he had parted from Aurora. There were no means of communicating with her, A letter could be conveyed only by a special messenger. He could not get a messenger, and even if one had been forthcoming, he could not instruct him how to reach Timer Castle. He did not know himself. The country was entirely unexplored, except that the direction was west. He had no knowledge whatever. He had often inquired of the shepherds, but they were perfectly ignorant. Anchor's Gate. Was the most westerly of all their settlements, which chiefly extended eastwards. Beyond Anchor's Gate was the trackless forest, of which none but the bushmen knew anything. They did not understand what he meant by a map. All they could tell him was that the range of mountainous hills continued westerly and southerly for an unascertained distance, and that the country was uninhabited except by wandering gipsy tribes south was the sea the salt water but they never went down to it or near it because there was no sustenance for their flocks and herds till now felix did not know that he was near the sea he resolved at once to visit it as nearly as he could discover the great fresh-water lake did not reach any farther south wolfstead was not far from its southern margin he concluded therefore that the shore of the lake must run continually westward, and that if he followed it, he should ultimately reach the very creek from which he had started in his canoe. How far it was, he could not reckon. There were none of the shepherds who could be sent with a letter. They were not hunters, and were unused to woodcraft. There was not one capable of the journey. Unless he went himself, he could not communicate with Aurora. Two routes were open to him, one straight through the forest on foot, the other by water, which latter entailed the construction of another canoe. Journey by water, too, he had found was subject to unforeseen risks. Till he could train some of the younger men to row a galley, he decided not to attempt the voyage. There was but the forest route left, and that he resolved to attempt. But when? and how, without offending his friends. Meantime, while he revolved the subject in his mind, he visited the river and the shore of the great lake, this time accompanied by ten spheres. The second visit only increased his admiration of the place, and his desire to take possession of it. He ascended a tall larch, from whose boughs he had a view out over the lake the shore seemed to go almost directly west there were no islands and no land in sight the water was open and clear next day he started for the sea he wished to see it for its own sake and secondly because if he could trace the trend of the shore he would perhaps be able to put together a mental map of the country and so assure himself of the right route to pursue when he started for timer castle His guides took him directly south, and in three three marches—three days—brought him to the Strand. This journey was not in a straight line. They considered it was about five-and-thirty or forty miles to the sea, but the country was covered with almost impenetrable forests, which compelled a circuitous path. They had also to avoid a great ridge of hills, and to slip through a pass or river valley because these hills were frequently traversed by the gypsies, who were said, indeed, to travel along them for hundreds of miles. Through the river-valley, therefore, which wound between the hills, they approached the sea, so much on a level with it that Felix did not catch a distant glimpse. In the afternoon of the third day they heard a low murmur, and soon afterwards came out from the forest itself upon a wide bed of shingle, thinly bordered with scattered bushes on the inland side. Climbing over this, Felix saw the green line of the sea rise and extend itself on either hand. In the glory of the scene he forgot his anxieties and his hopes. They fell from him together, leaving the mind alone with itself and love for the memory of Aurora rendered the beauty before him still more beautiful. Love, like the sunshine, threw a glamour over the waves. His old and highest thoughts returned to him in all their strength. He must follow them. He could not help himself. Standing where the foam came nearly to his feet, the resolution to pursue his aspirations took possession of him, as strong as the sea. When he turned from it, he said to himself, "'This is the first step homewards to her. This is the first step of my renewed labour. To fulfil his love and his ambition was one and the same thing. He must see her, and then again endeavour with all his abilities, To make himself a position which she could share. Towards the evening, leaving his escort, he partly ascended the nearest slope of the hills to ascertain more perfectly than was possible at a lower level the direction in which the shore trended. It was nearly east and west, and as the shore of the inland lake ran west, it appeared that between them there was a broad belt of forest. Through this he must pass. And he thought if he continued due west, he should cross an imaginary line drawn south from his own home through Tymer Castle. Then, by turning to the north, he should presently reach that settlement. But when he should cross this line, how many days travelling it would need to reach it, was a matter of conjecture, and he must be guided by circumstances, the appearance of the country. And his hunter's instinct on the way back to Wolfstead, Felix was occupied in considering how he could leave his friends and yet be able to return to them and resume his position. His general idea was to build a fortified house or castle at the spot which had so pleased him and to bring Aurora to it. He could then devote himself to increasing and consolidating his rule over these people and perhaps, in time, organise a kingdom. But without Aurora, the time it would require would be unendurable. By some means he must bring her. The whole day long, as he walked, he thought and thought, trying to discover some means by which he could accomplish these things. Yet the more he considered, the more difficult they appeared to him. There seemed no plan that promised success. All he could do would be to risk the attempt. But two days after returning from the sea, it chanced towards the afternoon he fell asleep, and on awakening found his mind full of ideas which he felt sure would succeed if anything would. The question had solved itself during sleep, The mind, like a wearied limb, strained by too much effort, had recovered its elasticity and freshness, and he saw clearly what he ought to do. He convened an assembly of the chief men of the nearest tribes, and addressed them in the circular fort. He asked them if they could place sufficient confidence in him to assist him in carrying out certain plans although he should not be able to altogether disclose the object he had in view. They replied, as one man, that they had perfect confidence in him, and would implicitly obey. He then said that the first thing he wished was the clearing of the land by the river, in order that he might erect a fortified dwelling suitable to his position as their leader in war. Next he desired their permission to leave them for two months. At the end of which he would return. He could not at that time explain the reasons, but until his journey had been made, he could not finally settle among them. To this announcement, they listened in profound silence. It was evident that they disliked him leaving them, yet did not wish to seem distrustful by expressing the feeling. Thirdly, he continued. He wanted them to clear a path through the forest, commencing at Anchor's Gate, and proceeding exactly west, the track to be thirty yards wide, in order that the undergrowth might not encroach upon it, and to be carried on straight to the westward until his return. The distance to which this path was cleared he should take as the measure of their loyalty to him. They immediately promised to fulfil this desire but added that there was no necessity to wait till he left them, it should be commenced the very next morning. To his reiterated request for leave of absence, they preserved an ominous silence, and as he had no more to say, the assembly then broke up. It was afternoon, and Felix, as he watched the departing chiefs, reflected that these men would certainly set a watch upon him to prevent his escape. Without another moment's delay, he entered his hut and took from their hiding place the diamond bracelet, the turquoise ring, and other presents for Aurora. He also secured some provisions and put two spare bowstrings in his pocket. His bow, of course, he carried. Telling the people about that he was going to the next settlement, Beadstone, and was anxious to overtake the chief from that place who had attended the assembly he started. So soon as he knew he could not be seen from the settlement, he quitted the trail, and made a wide circuit till he faced westwards. Anchor's Gate was a small outlying post, the most westerly from Wolfstead. He went near it to get a true direction, but not sufficiently near to be observed. This was on the 4th of September. The sun was declining as he finally left the country of his friends, and entered the immense forest which lay between him and Aurora. Not only was there no track, but no one had ever traversed it, unless, indeed, it were Bushmen, who, to all intents, might be confused with the wild animals which it contained. Yet his heart rose as he walked rapidly among the oaks. Already he saw her. He felt the welcoming touch of her hand. The danger of bushman or gypsy was nothing. The forest at the commencement consisted chiefly of oaks, trees which do not grow close together and so permitted of quick walking. Felix pushed on, absorbed in thought. The sun sank, still onward and as the dusk fell he was still moving rapidly westwards end of after london or wild england by richard jeffreys